Welcome. It's August 25th, 2021, and you're listening to the Caravan Podcast, a venture of the Herbert and Jane Dwight Working Group on the Middle East and the Islamic World at the Hoover Institution. The Working Group publishes research and commentary on the Middle East with questions for U.S. policy, and you can find our work at www.hoover.org caravan. I'm Cole Bunzel, a fellow at the Hoover Institution and member of the Working Group, and today we are very lucky to be joined by Asfandiar Mir, who is a noted expert on Afghanistan and Pakistan with a focus on issues of counterterrorism and political violence. Asfandiar is an affiliate of Stanford Center for International Security and Cooperation. He's published widely on issues related to Afghanistan, the Taliban, and Al-Qaeda, including most recently his piece for the Modern War Institute titled Untying the Gordian Knot, Why the Taliban is Unlikely to Break Ties with Al-Qaeda, which I would highly recommend. Asfandiar, thanks for coming on the Caravan Podcast. Thanks for having me, Cole. So in this discussion, uh, we'll of course be focusing on this ongoing crisis in Afghanistan, which is a country you know well. Uh, earlier this month, the Taliban completed their sweep of the Afghan state, capturing Kabul on August 15th. Con- contrary to the expectations of the Biden administration, the Afghan armed forces did not hold up, did not put up much resistance to the Taliban threat, and the Afghan government quickly crumbled after 20 years of U.S. support. And since then, we've been engaged in this large-scale evacuation of thousands of American citizens, as well as Afghan partners and vulnerable Afghans. So there's a lot to get to here, including the implications of all of this for U.S. foreign policy and the future of of international terrorism. But I thought we would begin by asking for your uh, personal reflections, since I know you were in Kabul on a research trip very recently, just a month ago or so. Um, I'm curious if you could tell us what the atmosphere there was like and whether you're surprised or not by what subsequently went down. Sure, Cole. So I was in I was in Kabul in July, uh, and in my time there, I I spoke to met up with the country's political leadership, government officials, uh, civil society activists. I also met some some diplomats uh, in you know in the in the capital city, and I spoke to them about the state of the battlefield, uh, what elite politics was like, regional political issues. Uh, counterterrorism things that I track, I'm interested in, you are interested in, uh, and finally some humanitarian issues. Uh, specifically, I was interested in uh, in the in in refugee flow and if if refugees were starting to um, to leave the country. Uh, and then I met people, you know, just regular people on the street, in the cab, in the bazaar. Also caught up with with some friends uh, in the city. I mean, I have to say that the the Kabulis have a lot mm-hmm. of spirit. They're extremely hospitable. Um, they, you know, their their homes, their doors are always open. But at the same time, this time around, I found a lot of despair among people. Uh, and here, I, you know, I'll mention a you know, story of a uh, of a cab driver I met. It's you know probably a little cliche story of a cab driver, but this interaction really hit me. Uh, you know, he was this young man from the province of Faryab. Um, and I think it was the middle of the day, got into the cab, we started talking. Uh, and almost immediately, as soon as he discovered that uh, I was uh, I traveled from the U.S., he asked me, why was I there? Like, you know, like there was such a bad time to be in the country. And then he started sharing with me his exit plans. He said, I'll go to Iran, maybe, maybe I'll go to Uzbekistan, maybe somehow I can reach Turkey. And then he recalled his time as a refugee in Pakistan. Uh, and saying, you know, to me in in disbelief that uh, that he was going to be a refugee again, most probably in a, in a few months. 
Hmm. And then finally, you know, while struck in traffic at one point, um, uh, you know, I was just sort of looking out of the window and he asked me to pay attention to the faces of all the people around us. And he said that, that just look carefully and notice how tense everyone is and that it's not just because of the traffic. So I thought that was pretty telling uh, of, you know, of the general mood in the in the city at the time. Um, you know, the political leaders that I met, uh, they were interesting and they had important insights to offer. They obviously, as always, deflected responsibility, criticized their rivals. They also made some persuasive arguments, especially on, on how the Biden administration was handling, or should I say mishandling, the withdrawal. Uh, and one theory that coming kept coming up in some of these conversations was uh, was that that the U.S. withdrawal was part of some grand U.S. conspiracy to keep the region burning, to counter U.S. adversaries like China, Russia, and Iran. The implication was that instability in Afghanistan is somehow good for the U.S. and bad for American adversaries, which is why the Biden administration was doing what it was doing. I tried to push back, but, uh, but I think uh, I was not able to convince many people. So this is a kind of conspiracy theory even um, embraced by members of the, the erstwhile uh, Afghan government. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So at the highest level. So, you know, I'm, like, I'm talking about this, some of the most senior leaders of the Afghan Republic, mm-hmm. uh, even they hold this particular view. So it seems to me like um, the mood was quite somber and perhaps Afghans in Kabul were less surprised by what happened than the Biden administration. Um, is that, would you agree with that? I, I, I think so. I think uh, people in Afghanistan certainly expected the worst. But what has surprised them as well as me and you know, other watchers who, who, who thought that things were going towards this, this really terrible outcome is the pace, the speed at which everything has um, has fallen apart? You know, I came back late July, and I didn't think the three weeks after late, you know, late July or after my return from the country, uh, the Afghan Republic would collapse. Yeah, so this was probably the worst possible outcome you could have envisioned. Is that right? It it, it really is the the worst possible outcome. I think I could have thought, you know, not, not just the collapse, but the pace at which this thing, uh, the Republic fell apart. Um, I think that's been, that's been most shocking to me, at least. And to consider how bad this is, um, say, purely from a U.S. lens, let's go through, you know, the main set of interests, U.S. interests here. So the U.S. Sure. government sees counterterrorism interests in the region, enduring counterterrorism terrorism interests, uh, policymakers are pretty open about it. Uh, there is also an abiding humanitarian obligation, uh, you know, towards uh, Afghanistan, the rights situation in Afghanistan, which I would argue is also an interest. Uh, some of us can be can pretend to be hard-nosed realists sometimes, um, but the reality is that with the political system we have here at home, globalization, social media, and whatnot. What happens in Afghanistan is inescapable. We can't divorce ourselves from it. Uh, and finally, there's this question of the outcome in Afghanistan affecting regional and great power politics. So yeah, give, yeah. I would like to ask your for your thoughts on the ramifications for all of this for U.S. credibility in, in this region on the world stage. Look, for many um, U.S. foreign policy watchers, uh, you know, what has happened was a certain outcome, a question of not if, but when. 
right. nevertheless, you know, in my view, it is one of the lowest points for U.S. foreign policy and national security in recent memory, arguably since since 9/11. And I think the swift collapse of the of the Afghan Republic, the fact that the military uh, Afghan military didn't put up a fight in the end. Uh, and the chaotic evacuation of the U.S. embassy, um, you know, in Kabul, vulnerable Afghans, the gut-wrenching scenes from the airport. I think it is inescapable that all of this is tremendously uh, humiliating. Uh, and we've had this discussion on failures of the of the post 9/11 approach, uh, but these conversations have been disjointed, and there hasn't been a strategic outcome to pin to these conversations. And I think what has happened now over the last two weeks gives that discussion uh, of failures a real face it in, encapsulates uh, you know america's post 9/11 failures in this in this one moment which is really hard to uh, argue with but on broader credibility concerns i'd say i'm a little torn uh, you know i hear people who are saying that this doesn't alter taiwan or south korea or the middle east's calculus on uh, on american security assurances uh, or alignment with the us Yet at the same time, I think we have to acknowledge that there's something unique about this about this moment, uh, which will have implications in the domain of credibility. So I'm watching the region pretty closely. I'm watching reaction of current allies in Europe and potential allies in South Asia, like like India, uh, and I'm also watching the allies of major powers, um, Russia and China. And I'd say that those who wanted to side with the U.S. in this, you know, upcoming great power competition conversation that, that we've been having, they're certainly very disturbed by what has happened. Uh, and um, in my view, they would be seriously debating hedging from this point onwards. And I'm thinking of India specifically. You know, the, those who have been, um, uh, you know, who've been arguing uh, for a tighter alignment. With uh, with the with the United States and India, I think I think they they have to pause a little at this point. Uh, and on the other hand, those who have been aligning with say the Russians and the Chinese, I think they have one more reason why not to reconsider their their alignments. Yeah. So President Biden has said that the last thing that uh, the United States should should be doing is allowing the Russians and the Chinese to to try to keep us. Uh, bogged down in a quagmire in Afghanistan, but it also seems that uh, our withdrawal from Afghanistan creates an opening for for Russia and, and China to to exploit Afghanistan for their own interests. Do you think that there's something to that? Look, I would say we don't have a coherent story for how this affects the region and uh, great power politics dynamic. What President Biden said is one view, but I think I could I could easily argue the opposite as well. You know. The argument that uh, that uh, you are making, the reality mm -hmm. is that that there's a lot of chaos and uncertainty in the region, and equilibrium has been disturbed. Uh, and this, you know, this ensuing chaos is hard to control, which is a problem, and I'd say unwelcome from a from a U.S. foreign policy vantage point. And we may hope that this will, you know, sort of uh, take the burden off the U.S. and it will instead embroil. Uh, rival, geopolitical, regional. Well, what's the guarantee? I think things can go in any direction from here on. You know, it's not a given that uh, this is this is a net beneficial outcome. I think uh, I think the verdict is still very much out, especially given how how this exit is, has played out over the last few weeks. Right. So another unknown is uh, what is going to happen in the next two weeks with this ongoing crisis. 
We saw President Biden yesterday recommit to August 31 as the deadline for full U.S. withdrawal and the end of the evacuation process. So how do you think the the next two weeks uh, could possibly play out? It seems like it's inevitable that some Americans and many Afghans, uh, including those who, who have you know, worked so hard for the United States, uh, will be left behind. Um, do you think that this is the making of a kind of mass hostage situation or, or will the Taliban um, you know, play soft here? So I think a lot of people who need to get out won't be able to get out if President Biden sticks to his deadline. There are these uh, these applicants of the special immigrant visa category and their dependents, uh, which might, per my understanding, uh, they were close to the 100K number. And that was before the, the collapse of the government. So a lot more people probably qualify for this particular visa category and are interested in, in leaving. Uh, I tracked the Afghan uh, counterterrorism sector, which is vast. You know, it's been sort of built up by the U.S. government. Uh, there are lots of operatives, lots of shadowy strike forces who have done paramilitary work, sometimes, you know, brutal paramilitary work. And, and you know, the Taliban uh, are their so- sworn enemies. Uh, so, so the Taliban are very likely to come after them. And it's not clear to me what will become of, of those people. Uh, I'm still not sure about the status of U.S. citizens in the country. We have got, haven't have gotten a number yet, so I think that gets close to the hostage situation you were mentioning. But on, on the Taliban itself, I'll say they realize that this is a point of leverage they have uh, mm-hmm. you know, over the U.S., so they may be thinking of extracting some concessions. They want aid, diplomatic recognition. Uh, so I wonder if they brought this up, um, you know, as a, as a trade when the CIA director Burns met with the Taliban deputy brother in Kabul, which, by the way, is a, is a remarkable that, meeting. That is in- a really remarkable development that the CIA director is meeting in Kabul with the Taliban. Um, Absolutely. Not, not being kidnapped. Hmm. Uh, so... You know, the idea of the, this, there being some sort of uh, relationship between the United States and, and the Taliban is, you know, it seems to be our future. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, it's, it's, it is a, a remarkable meeting. And I, I mean, I'll tell you that the Taliban will perceive this as yet another sign of their strength and of American weakness. The fact that, you know, the all important CIA director sort of, you know, came down to Kabul and came on their turf. Uh, to meet with them, so uh, so there's that as well. Uh, I mean, I, to, to just round off this point, I think the ISIS threat is uh, is important and it complicates everything. Uh, you know, the president, who I'm sure wasn't on top of uh, his Sunni jihadis and you know where the the affiliates of Salafi jihadis are and like what their names are, he's now dropped the word ISIS K in you know multiple different speeches. Uh, and that tells you that uh, probably the threat, uh, the ISIS threat, is a is a real problem. That, Maybe uh, just tell our about. listeners uh, what translate ISIS K for us, and perhaps you can help the president as well. Yeah, ISIS K is uh, is the the affiliate of um, the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. Uh, in Afghanistan, the K stands for the word Khorasan, which refers to this. Uh, uh, to the region of Afghanistan, Pakistan, parts of Iran as well. Um, you know, sort of it's, uh, it's, it's in the tradition, in the Islamic tradition, part of the Hadith has been referred to as, as one of the regions, one of the areas where 
one of the final battles of the end, of the end of time are likely to take place and so inspired by that a lot of uh, sunni jihadis uh, refer to this region as uh, as khorasan and the name their organizations with uh, with the prefix of khorasan yeah and it's probably it's important to underscore that and this is something the administration i think continues to to bring up um, perhaps as a, a way of vindicating its its policy here of uh, tacit alignment with the Taliban, that the uh, ISIS-K and the Taliban are sworn enemies. They have fought each other um, quite a lot, killed a lot uh, of each other. Um, so th th there is a real and genuine enmity uh, and rivalry uh, between these groups. Uh, the, the curious thing that, I, that I'm observing is that ISIS-K has been laying low since August 15th. And mm. um, it, it, it's curious why, you know, they, they usually claim attacks uh, several attacks, at least uh, um, per week, uh, in the Afghanistan area. Um, they used to attack the Afghan government and the Taliban, assassinations, bombings, things like that. So, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, Americans and uh, and Afghans to to attack. Um, it's curious why they aren't doing anything, but maybe they are planning something big. It is it is very curious, and I'll note that. Uh, uh... A lot of ISIS prisoners were released, you know, once the Taliban uh, were not released. Well, they were able to flee uh, once the Taliban took control of uh, of Kabul. A lot of uh, prisoners in prisons in and around Kabul. Uh, but at the same time, we are hearing reports of uh, around 100 ISIS prisoners who were killed, mysteriously killed. Um, and some people are saying that the Taliban... Uh, killed some of those of those people, and including a former leader of ISIS-K, Abu Umar Khurasani. So, yeah, so the rivalry is is real, but it's uh, uh, yeah, and it's an important issue to watch. All right. Well, this doesn't uh, mean that the Taliban are necessarily uh, friendly. Uh, let's get back to to the Taliban itself and the way that it perhaps plans to govern the country, and, and whether that's going to look quite different or not different from how it governed the country back when it was in power between 1996 and 2001. Um, so we've seen a lot of talk from the Taliban about the idea of forming a quote unquote inclusive government. Um, you know, I'm sure that there are serious limitations on their understanding of the word inclusive, but the idea that they're even uh, mentioning the idea of inclusivity is, is curious to me. Um, for those who are unaware, the Taliban's official name is the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. Um, so the idea that they're declaring an emirate is, is false. They've always had this emirate uh, claim. It's part of their, you know, their very identity. Um, so what do you make of this idea that they're going to form a quote unquote inclusive government? Why are they, why are they going through this? Is this a charade? Um, yeah. What's your sense? Right. So, so I think the Taliban are in, um, uh, consolidation mode uh, right now. Uh, they they came to power once uh, in '96. Then they lost power, uh, and and so they they have some experience of how consolidation in Afghanistan works. Um, and for that reason, they are engaged in politics. And I think more than inclusivity, what I what I sense is that they understand the importance of dealing with their uh, former political rivals. Uh, they realize that power brokers, uh, you know, exist in the country and, and getting them on board is important because if you don't do that, they can become a problem down the road. 
And some of the people who have realigned with the Taliban uh, already are like, are just, you know, remarkable um, characters, sometimes for the wrong reasons, you know, in, include brutal warlords who work with the CIA post 9-11, like this, this one gent in, from the south of the country, Gulaga Sherzai, who the, the then CIA station chief in Islamabad, you know, once considered as a as a potential future leader, he says that uh, he compared Gulaga Sherzai against Hamid Karzai and in the end, uh, you know, went, uh, voted for, uh, 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 suggested uh, Hamid Karzai over Gulaga Sherzai. Um, there's a, an ongoing discussion between the Taliban and former President Hamid Karzai um, and former Chief Executive Abdullah Abdullah. But it's my understanding that that conversation has not been about uh, any uh, firm political proposals. I think uh, this is still very much a preliminary conversation. But I understand that the Pakistanis and the Qataris are pushing the Taliban to make space for uh, Karzai and Abdullah. Uh, there is a resistance in the country. Uh, there's a small pocket of resistance led by the former Mujahideen leader, um, Ahmed Shah Massoud's son, who's also named after his father, Ahmed Massoud. Um, but the Taliban are even talking to him. Uh, I've heard reports that members of the Haqqani network have tried to sort of negotiate with him. But the bigger challenge for the Taliban, I'd argue, you know, when it comes to inclusion is like, you know, include it's 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 mostly internal to their own movement. Uh, the Taliban now have a political pie to distribute and there are multiple payments of this um, of this political pie. There are the southerners in the movement uh, who are not a monolith, sure, but they're the most influential group in the Taliban. There are the Haqqanis, uh, who are still listed as, you know, as a foreign terrorist organization by the State Department. And now there are even some non-Pashtun northerners uh, who are in the discussion. They've done well on the battlefield, so they're able to uh, to claim, uh, make claims as well. So the internal politics of the Taliban is is fairly complicated. But the, and how much do we how yeah. much do we really know about the the internal politics of the Taliban? Is that I mean, it seems fairly opaque and. I'm not entirely trusting of of some of the analysis about you know, there's these moderate groups and the hardliners and like, what do you think? Look, my my sense is that we don't know, we don't uh, fully understand and appreciate the complexity of the Taliban. I think uh, we have projected some some really uh, straightforward, oversimplified uh, analytic lenses to understand the Taliban, and those have not served us well. I think. Um, much of the empirical reality sort of belies those those lenses and those theories that we have about uh, the Taliban. My own sense is that the political echelon of the Taliban still has many leaders from the 1990s, right? So it's it's you know it's for that reason the core values of the group very much remain the same. Uh, there is a degree of uniformity. Uh, in what the movement, uh, you know, thinks or considers its priorities to be, they're very committed to their emirate. Uh, I think they see their leader as a caliph-like figure. Others see their leader as a caliph-like figure. You've written about that. Um, you know, yeah, we'll, we'll get to that shortly. But, sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, they reject elections. I think the U.S. government has pushed them hard on on elections or some type of participatory. You know, politics, but uh, but they're not uh, open to that. And then 
their views on the role of women in society, I think they remain the same, even if there there have been some changes uh, on on the margins. Overall, though, the Taliban are a are a smarter political machine uh, than they were back in the nineties. They they know how to navigate. It, it appears that they uh, they know how to navigate both the internal politics and the and the international politics of of, of Afghanistan. So last week, I think. Uh... In an interview with George Stephanopoulos, uh, President Biden was asked if the Taliban had changed since the last time that they held power. And, and President Biden kind of went back and forth on this, but he mentioned that the Taliban were experiencing what he called a, quote, existential crisis uh, regarding whether they want to be part of the, the international community to, to get international recognition. Um, do you think that they are, in fact, going through an existential crisis? I mean, did they... Is is holding out the the possibility of, of recognition something that um, you know we have as leverage? So I've been following this discussion debate on international recognition, and uh, I've tried to dig into this. And my sense is that the Taliban want international recognition, uh, but they are, and, you know, for that reason, they're certainly courting the world. They they have reached out to so many different countries. But at the same time, they want recognition on their terms and not on the terms of the international community. Uh, they're not willing to compromise on the Islamic Emirates. The consensus, the international consensus has been clear. Uh, the Russians, the Chinese, the U.S., uh, like all major powers have said that uh, an emirate is not acceptable, but the Taliban have not budged on that. Um, and I don't see them doing more on counterterrorism concerns voluntarily uh, to uh, to meet uh to sort of pacify the international community. Now, on political rights, which is obviously a major concern for the international community, the Taliban always give this caveat within the framework of Islamic law. So you ask them about women's rights, and they'll say, well, yes, we will give them rights within the framework of Islamic law. You ask them about minority rights, and you know, again, they'll say within the framework of Islamic law. You essentially append this this caveat to to every promise pledge they make. And I think that caveat is the operative most important part. Um, and the fact that they don't clarify what, you know, what's in this caveat, like it's, it's kind of a black box, uh, you know, that is what is worrisome. It suggests that there's something they're continuing to sort of withhold. And they think that the, is this say, say out, allowed the quiet part maybe the international community uh, you know, won't be okay with it. Um, final point I'll make here is that I think the U.S. government has pressed the Taliban on a lot of these issues for a long time. I think there's now a, nearly a 30-year history, like you know, if you start 94, 95, um, almost a 30-year history. And one argument that the Taliban have made all these years is that uh, when it comes to rights, when it comes to women, it, when it comes to concerns of the international community, we are no worse than your allies in the mid Middle East, like Saudi Arabia. And I think, I think you know, the current behavior suggests that this is not just a talking point anymore. Uh, in many ways, they're probably following the Middle Eastern authoritarian model. Uh, that you know, they will they'll do what they what they have to, but at the same time, they will they will perform a, a bit for the international community. Well, if they're going to go that route, it would be nice if they uh, stopped uh, their alliance with Al-Qaeda. Um, before we get to the question <laughs> of Al-Qaeda or 
right now we do want to get to the question of Al-Qaeda. Um, I think you would agree with me that President Biden spoke uh, quite badly last week when he said that Al-Qaeda was quote unquote, quote unquote, gone and rid from Afghanistan. Um, the United Nations, as you've written, has repeatedly affirmed that the presence of up to hundreds of, of Al-Qaeda militants on Afghan soil. Um, so what's your sense of the al or could you tell us about the Al-Qaeda presence in Afghanistan and its and its relationship to the Taliban? Right, right. So President Biden went a little far. Uh, I'd say, you know, he said Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan is gone. And and then the, the Pentagon had to walk back his claim, you know, an hour after he said that. And then the next day, the Secretary of State was also trying to sort of clarify the president's statement. So the administration has walked back that... Uh, uh, that uh, the major claim by by President Biden, but we have to acknowledge that uh, it's not just President Biden who th- thinks, or the Biden administration who thinks that Al Qaeda is sort of is too weak and perhaps uh, uh, is is inconsequential. Uh, many suggest the same thing. They say that you know the group is is not significant enough to play any any major role in. Uh, in the global global jihadi movement, um, some point to the lack of Al Qaeda attacks uh, over the last few years. Uh, but at the same time, I think we have to we have to look at Afghanistan a little bit closely and Al Qaeda's broader behavior. So, you know, last year in March, I think after the U.S. Taliban agreement, Al Qaeda issued this statement, which you analyzed, uh, I think, in one of your posts for Jihadika. Uh, sort of hailing the U.S. Taliban deal as a great historical victory uh, for the Taliban as well as, uh, as Al Qaeda. So Al Qaeda is very much paying attention to what's going on in Afghanistan. We've seen multiple statements um, by Al Qaeda affiliates over the last few days on the Taliban's taking of the of the country from Yemen to South Asia, even to northern Mali, West Africa, uh, and then. Uh, you know, as per my research, Al Qaeda's top central leadership is still in Afghanistan. So, Ayman Az Zawahiri, uh, there's a lot of debate on on his, uh, uh, you know, on whether he's alive or dead. My sense is that he's alive, most probably in Afghanistan. Until last year, the U.S. Uh, central commands, uh, commanding general uh, Ken- Kenneth McKenzie, he went on the record and said that Zawahiri uh, was in Afghanistan. I think that has not changed. Um, he might be frail, might be too ill to appear in propaganda, perhaps, but he's still there. The other leaders um, spoken to, you know, a number of sources who suggest the presence of uh, senior Saudi and Egyptian leaders uh, in the in the country. Um, there's also Al Qaeda's South Asia affiliate, Al Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent, uh, which has uh, supported the insurgency of the Afghan Taliban. Uh, over the last many years, it has been active on the battlefield. It has Al Qaeda and the Indians of continent rights about about its support to the Taliban fairly regularly. Um, and then finally, Al Qaeda in Afghanistan has some key capabilities. I think they have some important personnel. They have um, sources of funding. Uh, I think they have some unique weapons capabilities in the region, which they can instrumentalize uh, for a range of operations. What they, where they appear to lack is that is in in the in the area category of uh, Western foreign fighters. A decade back, Al Qaeda in Afghanistan, Pakistan region had a had a had a mini army of Western foreign fighters uh, from from the U.S., from Europe, different parts of Europe. I think ISIS was able to redirect some of that traffic to Iraq and Syria. 
And ever since, I have not seen many indications of, uh, of Western foreign fighters being present in, in Afghanistan. And there are just two things I want to I want to add to your analysis, and and the first is that the way that Al Qaeda has been presenting the Taliban for the last five or six years, which is to say that um, this is from the mouth of the the leader, whether he's alive or not, uh, Ayman Zawahiri, he's been presenting the, the supreme leader, uh, Amir al-Mu'minin, commander of the believers of the Taliban, as a kind of caliph-like figure, um, and the he's been presenting the. Um, the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan as a sort of proto-caliphate that will eventually, um, you know, fr- from which the jihad will expand and true Islam will you know, spread across across the globe. So there's a, a peculiar um, dimension to to Al Qaeda's ideology that is uh, focused on the Taliban and and its future, um, and that doesn't necessarily cohere with what we hear from the Taliban itself about its its own goals being uh, limited to Afghanistan, uh, its denial, at least from one of its uh, spokesmen, that there is any relationship uh, with Al-Qaeda, the constant denial that you know there's any Al-Qaeda leadership or, or membership at all in, in Afghanistan, um, which I think is nonsense. But um, nonetheless, the, there, uh, you get very different um, messaging from Al-Qaeda and from the Taliban. Uh, on this issue. Um, and then the other thing is regarding Al Qaeda's strength in Afghanistan. I think that, you know, um, a lot of this is is opaque. I don't think it's an issue that should be necessarily uh, played down, but it ought to be scrutinized. Um, Al Qaeda has, you know, a lot of, of, of issues and particularly a lot of the, fa- the fact that a number of its senior leaders are in Iran, um, not necessarily uh, uh, at you know, at, um, willingly there. Um, so, and then maybe they'll come to Afghanistan, but, uh, I don't think we should be treating, uh, the Al Qaeda presence in Afghanistan as kind of juggernaut, nor do I think that we should be kind of minimizing it. It's something, I mean, obviously the Biden administration is trying to minimize it because it's part of the, the, the kind of, uh, strategy of justifying the withdrawal. Um, so I don't know how you, how you feel about, yeah. about that. Yeah, look, look. I think I think that's been my problem with the the discussion on Al Qaeda over the last few years as well. That the policymakers have their preferred policy prescription, and then they backward induct Al Qaeda's threat level from that. I think, yes. uh, you mm-hmm. know, when it, say if if uh, the administration wants to go hard on Iran, they will start playing up Al Qaeda's sort of presence and threat levels from Iran. But if they want to withdraw from Afghanistan, they will start, you know, sort of playing down the threat that Al Qaeda poses, and uh, and you know, you go go a decade back, and you you had this hyper threat inflation that uh, maybe Al Qaeda can acquire a nuclear bomb any day, and so so all of this is to say that I think it's important to get Al Qaeda right, and uh, the the onus really is on the administration, I think, on the White House to paint an accurate picture of Al Qaeda not dismiss it and not overstate it. Um, so that's that's where I'm at. What, the other thing I'll point out regarding Al-Qaeda is that despite its weaknesses, what strikes me the most about the group in, say, 2021 is, is its sort of degree of resolve, the resolve of the people who are left in the movement uh, to uh, to basically to stick to a, an anti-U.S. platform, you know, compared to 20 years ago, there are lots of alternative paths and brands available. 
to uh, people who are in this jihadism business who want to wage some type of jihad. We see Abu Muhammad al-Jolani sort of carving out a new niche for himself, for instance. And, you know, ISIS has also uh, offered an alternative brand. So there are these other brands available. But the fact that Al-Qaeda's core kind of sticks to this old ideology, which maybe, you know, it's it's too old and it's a, it's, you know, it's a brand of the past, but just its commitment to that uh, that platform, mm-hmm. I think, is concerning, and that indicates to me a degree of political resolve uh, that that should be worrisome for for policymakers. And it's critical because the the Al Qaeda leadership uh, continues to say that you know its main priority is attacking the United States, um, which, uh, if you combine that with the fact that the Taliban have been uh, hosting. Uh, and cooperating um, and been on very friendly terms with Al Qaeda, including senior Al Qaeda, um, it makes us want. It makes me wonder why. Why do we feel comfortable um, trusting the Taliban to, you know, be our kind of partners in counterterrorism? Um, so that brings me back to this this pledge that the Taliban made in the um, kind of peace agreement that the United States signed with the Taliban in February 2020. Uh, I'll read to you the. Um, the part that I'm referring to. So the Taliban here pledged to, quote, prevent any group or individual, including Al-Qaeda, from using the soil of Afghanistan to threaten the security of the United States and its allies. And it seems like the Taliban are are still publicly, at least, committed uh, to giving the impression that they are going to adhere to this pledge. Um, So how do you you interpret their... um, you know, their statements about this pledge. Hmm. Yeah, well, what's there to worry about? They've made a pledge. We, we should just take them at their word and go on with our lives. I'm just kidding. I, I think there's there's plenty to worry about here. Um, Taliban still support Al-Qaeda. That's, it's, it's documented uh, by a range of different sources, um, monitors, the UN, the Defense Intelligence Agency, I think independent observers, um, uh, scholars like yourself, um, find different types of data points suggesting that this alignment very much remains. And this this alignment is worrisome because it has survived despite you know intense U.S. and international pressure on the Taliban. Uh, you know, the Taliban have been given multiple off-ramps that uh, disassociated yourself from Al-Qaeda in a credible way and uh, and the international community will reward you. Um, but the Taliban have not taken those off-ramps. Instead, they uh, they have offered these uh, these highly twisted uh, sort of justifications and some sometimes, you know, hard to falsify um, um pledges that they've made as part of the U.S.-Taliban agreement. I mean, I will note that since the agreement, the leadership publicly insists, as you note, that they will not allow Afghan territory uh, to be used as a safe haven, but they don't clarify why they were not able to uphold such a commitment before 9-11. I mean, to be sure, they made that commitment. You know, I think we now know that there were nearly 30 interactions between the Taliban and the U.S. government on the issue of of Al-Qaeda. Um, the, they also yeah. don't necessarily acknowledge that, that Al-Qaeda was responsible for 9-11. Isn't that right? That's that's exactly right. So I think that is uh, that's something uh, that came up in 
in one of my recent uh, interviews, I was told that uh, during the U.S.-Taliban negotiations uh, over Taliban ties with Al-Qaeda, the discussion broke down with the Afghan Taliban insisting that there's no proof that Al-Qaeda had sort of carried out the 9-11 attack and the U.S. delegation, which was negotiating, negotiating was was just uh, was really shot by by the insistence of the Taliban and kind of had to had to walked out and then the discussion uh, I think uh, the, it was um, revived with the help of an intermediary so it it very much remained a problem and ever since the Taliban condemned the 9/11 attacks I heard uh, Suhail Shaheen the Taliban spokesman condemning the attacks on say on on Fareed Zakaria's show some some weeks back. Uh, but at the same time, they are very careful to not link the 9-11 attacks to Al-Qaeda in their public remarks. Uh, and the final sort of public position which troubles me is that um, they've started saying that they're not required to break with Al-Qaeda under the U.S.-Taliban agreement. This is something they were not talking about much, but now they're talking about it. And for instance, uh, senior Afghan Taliban leader, um, who was also a member of the Taliban negotiating team in Doha, Amir Khan Muttaki, again an old timer, he's been around for a long time. Uh, he noted in an interview that the Taliban are not going to break with Al Qaeda or any other group under US or international or foreign pressure. And then in an interview to the Afghan news channel Tolo News, uh, the, the Afghan Taliban's main spokesman, Zabiullah Mujahid, he also noted the same thing that the Doha agreement does not require the Taliban to break from, from Al-Qaeda. So in other words, we don't have to break with Al-Qaeda. All we have to do is ensure that our friends here in Al-Qaeda don't use Afghan territory as a launching pad for attacks against the United States. That's that's the implication. Yeah. The implication. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah lovely. Uh, that's not very reassuring, is it? It's not. It, it's it's really worrisome. Yeah, especially if you know the fact that the, the similar commitments were made before nine eleven as well. All right. So uh, perhaps this is the last question. Uh, one of President Biden's state and ra- stated rationales for for getting out of Afghanistan has been that the threat environment of international terrorism has changed drastically since nine eleven. Namely, he's saying that Al Qaeda has a presence uh, in a number of countries around the world. Uh, from Africa to uh, to Asia, and we don't see the need to invade all of these countries. Um, and there's also ISIS, which is arguably a, a more significant threat to American interests. Um, so this is a rationale being offered, and he's and I bring it up because he's made it repeatedly in these uh, nearly daily um, press briefings. Now, um, I'm curious what you what you make of that rationale, and um, whether you think. Um, you know, Afghanistan could be different than some of these other countries that he's talking about from whether it's Yemen or Syria, um, whether Afghanistan has the potential to become a kind of uh, jihadi safe haven like no other country in the world. Right. So, I'm, you know, I found this talking point to be you know, interesting and curious that um, why is it that if the threat is diffuse, uh, we should care less about Afghanistan. Uh, I think perhaps the president's point is that we don't need forces uh, in Afghanistan, but at the same time, you you see this urge to really underplay the threat in, in Afghanistan, which I think is not right. And more generally, I feel President Biden, his administration is re- really underestimating what the Taliban's return means for global jihadism, 
we've had this conversation offline as well. The jihadis are electrified, and uh, you know, I wrote about it for the first time in 2019 that if the Taliban come back to power, it will be a, an iconic moment, uh, and it is proving to be that 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 type of uh, occasion for the Taliban around which uh, for jihadis around which they are uh, they are rallying. And then the the other more uh, more worrying implication is that uh, is that you know a state controlled by the Taliban will be extremely permissive for foreign jihadis. Um, I think uh, I think that fact is often sort of lost in this discussion. It's not not just you know when we think of safe havens, we often end up thinking of of you know failing states. But Afghanistan will not be a failing state. Will be a state controlled by the Taliban, uh, and the Taliban will exercise their control to facilitate these foreign jihadis, which I think is is extremely worrisome. It it opens a range of threats locally, regionally, and and you know and and transnationally. And I'm not saying that we'll we'll have a 9/11 attack type attack uh, again, but I think we are moving in that territory where. Uh, with such uh, spectacular violence once again becomes viable for for some of these groups. Yeah, it seems to me that this is a you know it's a very long term sort of uh, um, prognosis for for jihadism's future. Um, Afghanistan is going to become a kind of magnet for you know people who feel under threat because of their jihadi sympathies um, or their inability to operate in other theaters. And uh, you're going to f- see lots of training camps and um, all sorts of ideologues flocking to the country. Um, and I just wonder whether the repeated uh, assurances of the administration that, uh, don't worry, we, we uh, retain a quote-unquote over-the-horizon capability, whether, whether those are really meaningful, given how far Afghanistan uh, is from, from our uh, military assets uh, and um, the lack of intelligence that we're going to have, uh, we're not going to have on the ground intelligence anymore uh, to identify where the where training camps are, where the threats are located. Yeah, I, I mean, on that point, I'll note that the loss of capability from inside Afghanistan um, is total. Uh, I think, you know, with the collapse of the Afghan government, uh, there is no uh, real partner on the ground. Uh, who will either provide intelligence or act on behalf of the U.S. government. Uh, so, uh, so the counterterrorism posture has been greatly weakened uh, from from that uh, angle. And then the external counterterrorism posture that President Biden keeps re- referencing in his remarks that uh, we will keep a laser focus and we will watch Afghanistan. I mean, the fact is that Afghanistan is a landlocked country. Um, so even accessing Afghanistan uh, is a, is a major challenge and it requires um, some type of uh, conversation cooperation with the countries that are not the most friendly to the U.S. like Pakistan, even Central Asian countries um, uh, may not cooperate with the U.S. because of Russian influence there. Um, so it's the the external counterterrorism operation that the administration is proposing. I think it remains a long shot. And for that reason, I, I suspect that U.S. counterterrorism capacity in Afghanistan is going to be very weak, which will provide a range of jihadis a lot of space to, to maneuver. All right. With that, we will bring this to a, a close. Asfandiar Mir, thank you very much for coming on the Caravan podcast. Asfandiar is on Twitter at, at Asfandiar 
Mir. Again, I recommend his recent uh, analysis for the Modern War Institute titled Untying the Gordian Knot, Why the Taliban is Unlikely to Break Ties with Al-Qaeda. Please subscribe to the podcast and my my colleague Russell Berman will be back soon for the next episode. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.